Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics with you, as we do every other week. Today's episode will shed light on the increasing food insecurity that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created, yet another side effect of the many economic, social, and political repercussions of this senseless aggression. We will talk about the impact of the grain shortages on food insecurity in countries that already are food insecure and the heightened political risk that that poses. We're gonna be joined by a true expert on the subject, Jack Nikas, the New York Times correspondent in Brazil. And we'll talk about how Ukraine, now under siege by Russia, normally accounts for a third, that's 33% of the global production of wheat and one of the main providers of barley, sunflowers, and maize. With every day that goes by, the world's food stocks are reducing. It's true, Peter, and food insecurity was already bad, and hunger and food shortages due to climate change already had cut global production by about 20%. There's a dangerous cocktail of climate change, supply chain interruptions, social unrest that's making food insecurity worse and affecting mostly, like you said, the most impoverished and vulnerable countries, especially in Africa and the Middle East, but also even in some developed countries like Australia. And let's remember the tensions and what happened in the Arab Spring protest in 2011, which actually sprung from the high food prices. And families today in Syria and Yemen still struggle to afford food. And in Lebanon, prices have exploded by more than 1,000%. Imagine going to the grocery store a thousand percent more expensive. Tunisia is at risk at well, compounding political unrest already happening there. So all of those countries, along with giants like Egypt and Turkey, rely primarily on Ukrainian and Russian wheat. And that really begins to feel like a pressure cooker for political turmoil. Muni, the situation in Africa is even worse. Human Rights Watch has warned that many countries have seen disruptions of their imports of wheat, but also their imports of fertilizer and vegetable oils and other key commodities. Emergency assistance is insufficient and hunger already a significant concern after two years of COVID and the supply chain disruptions, which are maddening and so difficult for food distribution are causing increased problems and just look around and add the droughts, the floods, the landslides, and other climate effects, and the food problem is becoming critical. Let's add to this the rising cost of fuel to transport the fuel. The longer this lasts, according to the World Food Program, hunger may increase by up to 20% globally in the world's poorest regions. Global NGOs, multilateral institutions, and governments are taking note. We've only begun to experience the political consequences of this. These food shortages have implications for the world's poorest countries, but they also have huge effects for your own pockets in the richer countries. And let's hear from Thea about what is happening in Ukraine and how that affects your food supplies. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So Peter and Mooney, your conversation was very rightly focused on the world's poorest countries. And the World Food Program recently said it's taking food from the hungry to feed the starving. And it's just really devastating the effects on so many countries in Africa, Central Asia and the Middle East and North Africa are 
absolutely terrible. But it's also really important to understand it's not just something that's happening, you know, thousands of miles or kilometers away from us, but the war in Ukraine is also bringing added pressure on the global food supply chain, and it's affecting every single one of us personally, no matter where you live. And before Russia invaded Ukraine, food costs soared to all-time highs. And remember, I'm also a restaurant owner, so I'm very painfully aware of this every day. And supply chain issues and climate change contributed to this, with wheat prices over the past year going up by 61%. So regardless of whether you get grain from Ukraine or Russia or Australia or America, you're paying more for it. And economists will tell you that the market will just correct itself. But the large spade in the wheels here is fertilizers. And I want to talk more about that with our guests. But without fertilizer, farmers simply cannot just plant more crops. Russia and Ukraine are huge suppliers of fertilizer for the entire world. And for other reasons, countries around the world have been reducing their output of fertilizer for years now, which has just contributed to this terrible situation. And even if developed countries don't experience the same food shortages as many countries in Africa and the Middle East will, rising prices are inevitable. And to add to this mess, many richer countries are stockpiling items like wheat, corn, cooking oil to avoid shortages and try to push prices back down. But the problem is not only about the supply price of grain. It's more than that. The issue is that farmers may have to cut back on grains because of the fertilizer shortage. So then that means that animals won't be fed, which that means in turn that in a few months we'll see less meat on the market and a very basic analysis of supply and demand from my graduate school days will tell me that, yes, that will drive up prices even more, right? So at a time where the world is already so worried about inflation, that should be a real cause for concern. Are you concerned? Are you seeing this already in the supermarket? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Absolutely, Thea. This seems to be a problem on top of a problem on top of a crisis. And there's one thing which is finding delays on Amazon orders. And it's a totally different thing to have the world's most volatile regions experiencing huge price hikes, empty shelves, and staggering numbers. Already, some sub-Saharan countries have suffered unrest due to food riots and are shaking up governments. This is a great time to introduce our guest, Jack Nikas from the New York Times, one of the journalists who has consistently shed light through his reporting and his research to this urgent matter. He's now the Brazil bureau chief for the New York Times covering the Southern Cone, and his beat includes politics and social issues in the region. But in his career, he has tackled big global issues like Apple business in China, extensive coverage of Facebook and the fatal flaws in Boeing's 733 MAX jets. He's won multiple awards for his reporting. Before joining the Times, Mr. Nika spent seven years at the Wall Street Journal, where he covered other big subjects, technology, aviation, the American Midwest, and has also written for the Boston Globe and the St. Petersburg Times in Tampa. Recently, though, we have read extensively about his coverage of the invasion of Ukraine, focusing on food shortages and hunger as triggers for social unrest, as triggers for conflict. Welcome, Jack. This is a true pleasure to have you with us on Altamar. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jack, you have become a world expert on food supply and food insecurity. So how did the Brazil bureau chief become your paper's lead and a widely read source for this important story? Tell us how you started realizing the importance of this war on global supply chains and the impact on food insecurity. 
Well, first, I, I certainly want to say I'm, I'm hardly an expert on this, but as as you know, as reporters, we often have the privilege of speaking to experts about how things work. And so I've learned a lot over the past few months in speaking to the folks who really do study these issues. And the reason I got involved was also because, as you know, Brazil is one of the world's largest producers of food. And it is a huge part of the economy here. It's a huge part of Brazil's role in the world. And right away after the invasion of Ukraine, there was a large debate here in Brazil because Russia is the leading supplier of fertilizer to Brazil. And fertilizer is crucial to Brazil's ability to grow food for the world. And there was very quickly a debate over what was going to happen here in Brazil with fertilizer potentially trapped in Russia and what impact this would have on the global supply chain. And right now we actually lack a dedicated agriculture reporter. And so I sort of dove in and realized there was a much, much larger issue, not just about Brazil, but about the war's overall impact on the global food situation. This crisis could be and is already being devastating for regions that are already experiencing the consequences of climate change and the COVID pandemic. There's many that are virtually entirely dependent on Russia and Ukraine's agricultural products. Can you give us a sense of how important Ukraine and Russia are in numbers to the world supply of food? And what about this year's harvest in those countries that are completely going to be skipped? They are essential. They are both bread baskets, you know, particularly for Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and that means they are enormous producers of wheat. Actually, together, Ukraine and Russia account for about a third of the world's wheat exports. But they're also major producers of corn. They produce about 17% of the corn exports, about a third of the barley exports, which is a really important source of animal feed. And they make three quarters of all the sunflower seed oil that is exported around the world. And that's a really important cooking oil for some countries. And so that's a big shock if all of that food cannot get out of Russia and Ukraine. And in the early weeks and months of the war, there was real concern about the ability of that food to get out. Actually, early on, both Ukraine and Russia put export restrictions on because they were worried about feeding their own populations. But even from just a practical standpoint, you know, looking at Ukraine, they're at war. I mean, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, and so we have farms that are literally battlefields. And we have farmers who are on the front lines or who have had to flee the country. And we have ports that were crucial for exporting Ukrainian wheat now blocked or inaccessible. And that means a lot of food is trapped in Ukraine, essentially. And over in Russia, a lot of the sanctions have complicated the ability and the exportation of a lot of this food. And what that means is, you know, a lot of Russian wheat and Ukrainian corn and sunflower seed oil, etc., is really struggling to get out of that region of the world. And I imagine there's two problems. One is getting the food that's already been harvested out. But the other problem is what happens to the planting season this year? Exactly, exactly. And that is particularly an issue in Ukraine, where, as I, as I noted, you know, there is a war raging. And what I'm actually just recently here, I'm just having a conversation with uh, Joseph Schmidt-Uber, who's a really excellent economist uh, at the Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN. He told me that the, the latest signs are actually that the, the current harvests in Ukraine are strong that actually they are figuring out how to get 
some of the wheat out, harvest it, put fertilizer on the new crops. It's not going to be, I think, as as strong as past years because there's a ton of limitations. But now suddenly there's a new issue and that's getting the, the wheat out of Ukraine. And in fact, they don't know where, they potentially aren't going to know where to put the new wheat because we have the, the grain elevators and things that are storing the wheat are full because they haven't been able to export it. And now they don't know where to put new wheat potentially. And there's other major issues. You know, there's, there's weight limitations on the rail lines that are in Ukraine. The ports are blocked by Russia. You know, shippers don't want to go into the Black Sea because there are warships there. And then there's a real shortage of diesel fuel, which powers the tractors to harvest wheat because a lot of the diesel is being routed for tanks. So it is a huge, uh, complicated mess in many ways. And there's going to be real questions about what will happen with Ukrainian wheat. Yeah, and when food shortages happen, you know, economists always answer, well, the, the market is going to correct itself and take us back to some type of equilibrium. But here, it seems to me that two things are different. One is what you just talked about, which farmers can't plant more crops because the bombs are flying. And the second is getting into what you mentioned at the beginning, which is a lack of fertilizer. Can you explain this fertilizer issue? Yeah, I think it's it's a really crucial part of this story because it is kind of what's different. There have been, you know, issues with crops in the past, you know, maybe a, a strong weather event that has caused, uh, you know, a large portion of a crop to be lost. But as you noted, and as economists have talked about, the market often does correct itself. Then what happens is prices go up when the crop supplies go down. That encourages more farmers to plant more. And then you you sort of have the market fixing itself. What the problem with this war is that it is not only trapping a lot of food in Ukraine and Russia, but it is also potentially trapping fertilizer in Russia. And the reason that matters is that if farmers can't get or afford the fertilizer, they're not going to be applying it to their crops. And that means the next round of crops, the yields will be lower. We'll have less food to make up for the shortages that we're already dealing with. And the reason that fertilizer is becoming sort of shorter in supply and also more expensive is for a number of reasons. A, energy prices are way up, which is linked, of course, because Russia is a huge oil and gas producer. And you use natural gas and and other types of gas to produce many of the most important fertilizers. That has caused many European producers of fertilizer to halt production or severely limit their production because it's just not profitable for them anymore. Russian fertilizer, as we've already noticed, is you know, in some cases being trapped in Russia because of sanctions and also because of shipping concerns. And shipping is becoming complicated. You know, it's becoming much more expensive because of logistical issues, et cetera, and long-lasting effects from from the pandemic. And so altogether, that means fertilizer prices are soaring and farmers are potentially going to start using less and less of it, uh, which is a big concern for the longer-term outlook here. So you live in Brazil. Brazil is a huge agriculture producer, the world's largest producer of soy, but also a major producer of wheat, rice, and certainly a huge producer of beef. So what's happening in Brazil? How do Brazilian farmers access fertilizer? So Brazil is is highly dependent on Russia for a specific type of fertilizer called potash. And this is crucial fertilizer, especially for soybeans. Uh, and Brazil is the world's largest producer of soybeans. Soybeans are are extremely important to feed the world's animals, for, for the world's livestock. And potash, you know, really largely comes from three countries, Canada, Russia, and Belarus. And 
Belarus is Russia's closest ally, is also facing its own sanctions related to the, the, some of the actions by the president there. So the potash in Belarus has been blocked. Russia, as we've noted, the, a lot of the fertilizer has been trapped there. And so that is really worrying a lot of the Brazilian farmers here about what is going to happen with the next soybean crop. And the, and the crop, the soybean crop was already harmed by a massive drought that happened in Brazil, you know, this past year. So that was the debate for, you know, the past few months. But the good news for the global food situation is that we are now just getting signs that Russian fertilizer is actually getting out of Russia and into Brazil. And that is in part because Brazilian buyers have found workarounds uh, on the financial sanctions. They have basically found one Russian bank, Gazprom Bank, which is handling energy transactions to be able to handle also payments for Russian fertilizer. And they've, they've been able to find some shippers to also bring it from Russia to Brazil. So that's good news. It's not as much potash as they're used to getting, but it should be enough to get the soybean crop at a healthy level. And so that's good news for uh, the global food situation in here in Brazil. Um, but it could be bad news for the West's political and diplomatic strategy with Russia because obviously the sanctions are designed to isolate Russia economically. And if Russia is able to continue to sell its fertilizer, um, that only means more money for the Kremlin to continue its war in Ukraine. Was this a big debate in Brazil, a very open debate about whether one should follow national interests or follow worldwide sanctions? It actually wasn't a debate here. In fact, it, it almost, there was, uh, you know, at least from the politicians, it was a pretty universal stance that, listen, soybeans and, and, and agriculture in general is so crucial to our national economy and our national security. We must get fertilizer uh, by whatever means necessary. And, and President Jair Bolsonaro here has been explicit about that. In fact, even before Russia invaded Ukraine. And when a lot of the international community knew what was coming and there was Russian troops amassed at the Ukrainian border, President Bolsonaro traveled to Moscow, met with Vladimir Putin at the protest, basically, of, of American and Western officials and said that Brazil stood in, quote, solidarity with Russia. And, and he very clearly, when he came back to Brazil and was questioned about this by the Brazilian press, he said, listen, we have a really important relationship with Russia. He, he called fertilizer sacred to Brazil and uh, made clear that, you know, our interests in our agriculture crop far exceed our interest in getting involved in a foreign war. The World Food Program is the major international organization that distributes food to the world's neediest, refugees, those escaping natural disasters or wars. But why are organizations like these so unusually dependent on food stocks from Ukraine? It's sort of a matter of geography to some degree. I mean, wheat is a huge staple, A, to feed people easily and cheaply. And a lot of the countries where the World Food Program works happen to be in the Middle East and Africa. You know, there are places like, particularly places that have really been struck by conflict, places like Yemen and Syria, Afghanistan, you know, parts of Sudan, et cetera. So, and these places are geographically close to Ukraine. And so they, the World Food Program, yes, buys a, a very large portion of their wheat from Ukraine. So, so the, World Food, the World Food Program relies on Ukraine for a very large chunk, 
of its food. And so now even the World Pro Food Program is, is looking for new places to get food, to, to feed the places that um, are hit by the higher food prices that are the result of the war. So there is a sort of um, a, a snowballing effect that's happening here, for sure, and, and including for the NGOs and, and the organizations that are in the places that are in the most dire food situations. Right. And if we remember, you know, you talked about higher food prices and, you know, the Arab Spring 10 years ago was triggered by high food prices. Do you fear some of these political implications in the developing world in particular where people are so sensitive to higher food prices that what we're seeing in Ukraine is certainly going to be have a detrimental effect? I think that that is a big concern. You know, historically, for decades, particularly in, in North Africa and the Middle East, there has been a, a very clear link between higher food prices and social unrest. And as you noted, the Arab Spring was pretty directly linked to high food prices, though there were a number of other factors as well. But it wasn't just the Arab Spring. There are many other uh, protests and movements that have been kind of sparked by people being frustrated about their ability to, to buy food, the most basic uh, necessity. And there already are some signs that we're seeing some similar activity. You know, it, already in Tunisia, in Egypt, we're seeing signs of unrest because of the cost of food, you know, some protests. And the other, you know, thing for these governments to be concerned about is what happened after the Arab Spring and after other similar protests. A lot of these governments realized that because the price of food was so closely linked to the happiness of the population, the governments heavily subsidize wheat and other food. And so as food prices have soared, it has created real solvency issues for some of these governments. And there's a real question about whether or not places, you know, entire economies are going to be sunk by these soaring food prices. And, and the food prices, to give you a sense, I mean, I just looked at these numbers. This is the latest data. So just since the start of the invasion, uh, global corn prices are up 20%, wheat prices are up 19%, barley is up 41%, and sunflower oil is up 82%. These are the four major commodities coming out of Ukraine and Russia. Um, and so those are that's just in two months, really. I mean, th those are major increases. The numbers are even more dramatic when you look at year to date. And so this is this is real. It's it's happening now. It's not something that we're worried about in the future. It's it's something that countries are already struggling with. So, Jack, Peter and I are also restaurant owners, and we've experienced firsthand these rising food costs, and we see it every day. And the ripple effects of the fertilizer shortage are greatly affecting food industries around the world, such as meat production, for example. So where do you see this go in the next 8 to 12 months? Well, there are real potential for ripple effects in the sort of global agriculture markets. And, and the, the way, you know, globalization has now worked is wheat gets trapped in Ukraine, it has an effect for the entire world. And there are these cascading effects. And so for instance, you know, what often will happen is uh, certain soybean farmers, for instance, will shift to plant wheat because there's higher prices for wheat. And then we have uh, maybe potentially lower soybeans and prices for soybeans then go up. And then there's less soybeans to feed cattle. And then we have cattle that are less in quantity or they're smaller 
than usual, less heavy, and then meat prices go up. So there's there's the potential for a lot of cascading effects that economists are worried about here. And we actually don't have to go down that far of a, a logical chain there because barley, as I noted, which is a huge, a really important feed for, for cattle and for other livestock, you know, prices are up 40%, as I noted, a huge portion of them, a third of the barley comes from Ukraine and Russia. And that means the, you know, the pigs and the chickens and, and cattle are going to have less barley to eat, or it's going to be more expensive. Farmers are going to be willing to give them less. And we're going to have smaller chickens, pigs, and cows, and you're going to be paying more for your steak as well. It's not just going to be more for your bread. Um, and so this could, this could really last. Let's talk a bit about China and India, the world's most populous countries. Food shortages and extreme price increases in either of these two, two countries could have dramatic consequences and compound issues. Well, uh, you're right. I mean, they, they are very important, you know, uh, obviously contain a huge portion of the world's population, but they have approached this a little bit differently in the sense that, you know, China, for instance, is a little more protectionist in its approach to this. And so it's set its own export controls to try to retain a lot of the food inside of China. And they are, they have less qualms with buying food from Russia and buying fertilizer from Russia than maybe other countries do. And so they seem to be able to get a lot of what they need right now. And India similarly has less qualms about buying from Russia, and they seem to be increasing purchases from Russia as well. I mean, and for a place like China in particular, you know, it, it's really, when we talk about the global food market, it is truly a market. The, the highest bidder will get the food and China, frankly, has the money. Uh, so China will probably not go without, but if it bids high, it probably means prices will continue to go up. So it's not necessarily the, the China to be worried about. It's more the Yemens and the, the Syrias and the Iraqs of the world that will be going without. Aside from doing what you and other journalists, NGOs, human rights organizations, even this podcast, that raising awareness, is there any call to action that can be made worldwide? Oh, I mean... It's a really complicated issue. And I think, you know, as we noted, um, the dilemma here, and, and I think we got at this with the, with the Brazil fertilizer issue is, you know, getting, buying fertilizer and food from Russia, for instance, is, is it's clearly, listen, just frankly important and necessary to ensure the world can eat. But at the same time, the concern is about trying to get, there's, there's real concern about putting more dollars into the coffers of the Kremlin, given what's happening in Ukraine. I, I think there's actually a really interesting proposal. I, I mentioned this economist, Joseph Schmidt-Huber, uh, at the Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN, but he's talking about sort of trying to bring back a barter system, actually, where places like Brazil would trade soybeans for Russian fertilizer. And the, the benefits there would be that Russians would get the soybeans that they need. It would produce, you know, the Russians can eat. Brazil can get their fertilizer and you're not paying with dollars that can then be rerouted to the war. And so potentially if you could figure out these sort of new barter situations for dealing with a place like Russia, where you need some of the commodities that they provide, but you don't want to give them dollars, I think that's a really creative solution. It's kind of an old school approach, but uh, maybe necessary. But that's a little, a little you know, unusual of approach. I think just from a broad perspective, um, you know, I think there's going to be a really, really dire uh, situation with places that are experiencing famine and play, you know, organizations like the World Food Program are rapidly running out of money because they're spending so much more because of the higher food prices and those places need to be funded. 
um, and they're 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 way underfunded. Jack Nikas, the Brazil bureau chief of the New York Times, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. There's a sense of helplessness in this in this podcast, Peter and Thea. There's really no kind of no end in sight. This is getting worse. It's compounded by trade policy of all things, where countries are. Uh, setting export controls to their food products and in trying to basically hoard by country. So it's, it's really hard to see where this ends. And it, it does require that organizations step up. I mean, this cannot be resolved with a UN stupid resolution that does nothing. It's time for the rich countries and the multilaterals and the important organizations in, in kind of world power to step up and actually develop some sort of solution before these countries really fall into complete starvation. It's, it's, um, it's time. Yeah, look, Muni, I mean, I think um, there, there's a lot of frustration with the UN, but there's certainly UN organizations that are amazingly adept and have just do consistently over and over again, incredible jobs And the World Food Program is one of them. The problem is that the World Food Program has, I don't know, 30% of its grain supplied by Ukraine. So th th there has to be a fundamental switch in the way we manage this food crisis because I feel, I like the word you used, helplessness. I feel like for the first time, this food crisis is not about a single region in Africa or climate change devastation to a certain part of Southeast Asia. It is instead a global crisis that is truly hitting everybody. Yeah, and I also think, you know, the future, right? I think we have to to think about how this completely affects the global food supply chain and you know fertilizer is one of these one of the the main reasons why this is such a big problem and it's not just about the market correcting itself which is what economists keep you know pounding at i mean it's the problem is there is no fertilizer there's not enough fertilizer to create these crops no matter where it's not just about ukraine and russia and you know, China produced a lot of fertilizer, but then with its Blue Skies program that it wanted to have, you know, blue skies during the Winter Olympics, it stopped a lot of this fertilization because it's based on coal. So, you know, there, this is a worldwide problem. And, um, you know, I think it'll be important to see how, how we fix that. So with that, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts and also sign up for our biweekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time.